Russia takes out an American drone over the Black Sea, the first physical contact between the two countries since Russia's invasion of Ukraine began. It's Wednesday, March 15th. This is WBMR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the growing political divide among some Republicans when it comes to U.S. aid for Ukraine. Plus, as Congress investigates the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, some customers are moving their money from smaller regional banks to larger companies. Moving forward, maybe we'll always be like a little bit more diversified and a little bit more cautious about, you know, being with a smaller bank. And this hour, the problems some job seekers in Massachusetts face when they don't have the tools to apply for a job online. If you don't have that level of proficiency, then you can't fully participate in society. In sports, the Bruins lose, mostly cloudy in the 40s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Russia's ambassador has been summoned to the State Department to hear protests over a downed U.S. drone in the Black Sea. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports the U.S. military says a Russian jet clipped the propeller of the Reaper drone, forcing it to crash. The State Department calls it a brazen violation of international law and accuses the Russian military of a, quote, unsafe and unprofessional intercept of the Reaper drone. Russia's ambassador, Anatoly Antonov, says Russia doesn't want confrontation or unintended incidents, but he argues the drone should not have been there. This drone can carry a few bombs. What will be the reaction of United States if you see such Russian drone very close, for example, to San Francisco or New York? The U.S. says the collision happened over international waters near Crimea. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. President Biden travels to Las Vegas today where he will discuss drug pricing. The Inflation Reduction Act passed last year penalizes drug makers who boost prices faster than inflation rises. Medicare officials have released a list of more than two dozen prescription drug drugs whose prices zoomed upward. Ohio Attorney General David Yost is calling last month's train derailment in East Palestine an epic disaster. NPR's Giles Snyder tells us Yost has filed a lawsuit against Railroad Norfolk Southern. The lawsuit does not specify the amount of damages the state is seeking from Norfolk Southern, but Attorney General David Yost says a cleanup is going to be expensive. Norfolk Southern says it's committed to making things right. Yost says the lawsuit is aimed at making sure the railroad lives up to its promises to help the community recover. NPR's Giles Snyder reporting. The Food and Drug Administration has authorized drug maker Pfizer's new COVID booster for very young children. NPR's Rob Stein reports this is for babies and toddlers who already got three doses of the company's original vaccine. The FDA authorized the Pfizer-BioNTech bivalent vaccine targeting the Omicron variant for children ages six months through four years. Until now, kids that age were only eligible for the new booster if they had received two doses of the original vaccine. But now, those kids can get the new booster as long as they got their third shot with the original vaccine at least two months ago. It remains unclear how many parents will get their babies a new booster, though. Most still haven't received the original shots, and most parents of older children haven't gotten their kids one of the new bivalent Omicron boosters. Rob Stein, NPR News. Later this morning, the federal government will report on retail sales for February. Personal spending has been strong at the start of this year, even though inflation remains stubbornly high. This is NPR. 
From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. The amount of snow you see as you wake up and look outside this morning depends on where you are. In Boston and along the coast, you might have a slushy inch or so to brush off the car. It's a different story in central Massachusetts. The National Weather Service reports more than 18 inches of snow fell yesterday in places like Holden and Lemonster. There are more than 32,000 power outages statewide. Most of those are in the higher elevations north of Worcester. The owner of a dairy farm in the Merrimack Valley says he's feeling lucky after his barn collapsed during the storm yesterday. WBUR's Wilder Fleming reports that the owner thinks things could have been much worse. Warren Shaw owns Shaw Farm in Dracut. He says all humans and most animals survived when the weight of heavy snow precipitated the collapse. You know, on balance, that could have been so much worse because there were, you know, 90 cows in that building and and people working, so we escaped without uh, a very, very serious problem. Shaw says friends and neighbors pitched in to help remove part of the roof to free a majority of the trapped cows. So it was a very, very tricky uh, operation, but with a lot of you know good friends and neighbors, we managed to uh, get through it. The surviving cows are temporarily at neighboring farms. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Wilder Fleming. Boston's chief of streets calls the program to make three T bus lines fare free a success. The three bus lines in Mattapan, Dorchester, and Roxbury went fare free a year ago. Yasha Franklin Hodge says riders are saving money. He believes the program is having a positive impact. They're telling us in the surveys we've done that they're using that money for food, for saving for household goals, to replenish emergency funds. So we're seeing, seeing a really positive economic impact. We've seen ridership growth north of 20 percent on the free routes. Franklin Hodge says that Boston has been talking with neighboring communities about possible free service on some additional lines. Massachusetts sports betting operators who say they allowed bets on a college basketball game by accident promise that won't happen again. Bets on in-state college teams are illegal here unless the team is in a larger tournament. Encore Boston Harbor and WinBet say they rushed to get things done before in-person sports betting went live in January. The Gaming Commission hasn't said if Encore or Win will face any penalties. Newton residents have narrowly rejected an increase to their property taxes. 53 percent of voters said no to question one in yesterday's citywide vote. That would have given the city more than $9 million to fund local infrastructure projects. Voters did approve nearly $6 million in bonds to rebuild two aging elementary schools. It's 7.07. WBUR supporters include Zevin Asset Management building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet. Learn how to have impact at Zevin.com. In sports, the Bruins lost to the Blackhawks 6-3 to last night in Chicago. The Bees will visit the Winnipeg Jets tomorrow. The Celtics will be on the road tonight to play the Minnesota Timberwolves. Mostly cloudy and breezy today. Temperatures will get into the lower 40s. Partly cloudy overnight. It'll get down to the lower 30s. Mostly sunny tomorrow and in the upper 40s. It's 36 degrees in Boston at 707. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Association of Plastic Recyclers, whose member companies recycle plastic packaging into new products, working towards a world where everyone uses less by recycling more. Learn more at plasticsrecycling.org.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Layla Falden. Shares of small regional banks regained some ground yesterday after falling sharply on Monday. But they're facing questions about their stability and fears that depositors will take their money elsewhere. NPR's David Gura joins us now to explain. Good morning. Hey, Layla. Hi, David. Okay, so shares are regaining ground. The administration announced a major rescue plan, but people are still feeling skeptical of smaller banks. What's driving the fear? Yeah, the twin failures of those two banks was so shocking that even after President Biden assured Americans on Monday morning the banking system is safe, mm-hmm. many people are still being extra cautious. Danelle is one of them. She's a real estate agent in California. She asked us not to use her last name because she's discussing her finances. And on Monday, Danelle was standing in line outside a First Republic Bank branch in Los Angeles. She was there waiting to withdraw most of her money. And Danelle told us she plans to move it to a larger bank where she believes it will be safer. So I think just... Moving forward, maybe we'll always be like a little bit more diversified and a little bit more cautious about, you know, being with a smaller bank. Now, no small regional bank wants to hear that, Layla. So right now they're working extremely hard to keep customers from going elsewhere. Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank were pretty unique. They had a large uninsured set of deposits and they catered to very specific segments of the population. And I should say right now there is no indication any small bank is in trouble. But a bank analyst told me this is a show me moment for banks. They're under pressure to show their investors and their customers that they're in good shape. So how do they do that? How are they making the case? Bankers are taking a long, hard look at their balance sheets and how their money is invested, and some of them are trying to build up a buffer in case they were to face a bank run. First Republic, which is based in San Francisco, actually went to J.P. Morgan Chase, one of the big banks over the weekend, to mm-hmm. line up financing just in case. Nathan Stovall is the head of financial institutions research at S&P Global Market Intelligence, and Stovall told me he expects many banks will want to keep more cash on hand. They're going to be more conservative going forward. I think you're going to see banks be a lot more cautious when it comes to making new loans right now, because the easiest way to preserve the cash you have is not lend it out. Now, this week, we've seen the heads of regional banks trying to push back against negative sentiment. They're reaching out to their customers directly, according to Rebecca Romero Rainey, who's the CEO of the Independent Community Bankers of America. And Rainey says this is their message. Take a breath. Let's have a conversation. Let's focus on the facts. And Layla, banks have Some additional protection here. The Federal Reserve on Sunday made emergency funding available to other lenders just in case they get into trouble. Good for them to have, but obviously a measure of last resort for banks because of the stigma that would likely come with tapping into that financing. So what could the long-term impact be on the banking landscape? We could see more consolidation of small regional banks, according to Nathan Stovall. There are about 4,500 of them in this country. But the majority of small business loans in the U.S. come from community banks. And banking with them appeals to a lot of people and to businesses because they're smaller, they're nearby, you can develop close relationships with individual bankers. And that's what these banks are trying to remind customers of as they face new scrutiny. I'll say lastly, there's likely to be more scrutiny of all banks. The former chair of the FDIC was on NPR yesterday, and Sheila Bear is calling for every bank to undergo stress tests, regular exams from regulators, Layla, to make sure that they'd be able to weather a crisis. NPR's David Gura. Thanks, David. Layla, thanks. Some Democrats in Washington blame the recent bank failures on a rollback of landmark banking regulations. Those regulations were meant to stop a repeat of the 2008 financial crisis. And this is what Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren said when I asked her about it yesterday. I warned this is not going to work. This is not going to end well. And sure enough, we saw the consequences of that over the weekend. 
Warren was talking about legislation in 2018 that decreased regulations known as Dodd-Frank. That had the effect of giving mid-sized banks a break. But after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, Warren and other Democrats want to turn back the clock. Carter Doherty is with the left-leaning advocacy group Americans for Financial Reform. He says that 2018 decision wouldn't have happened without bipartisan support. The Senate being what it is, the bank lobby that supported this had to peel off a certain number of Democrats in order to get it through the Senate, and they did succeed in doing that. 16 Senate Democrats voted for what was called the Crapo Bill, named after its sponsor, GOP Senator Mike Crapo of Idaho. Money does talk in Washington. There was a significant effort by commercial banks, especially in that 50 to $200 billion size range that stood to benefit from the deregulation of the legislation. Senator Chris Coons of Delaware was among the Democrats who voted to ease the rules for mid-sized banks. In a statement to Morning Edition, he told us it's not clear whether the old Dodd-Frank regulations would have made a difference. He also said relaxing some of those rules helped many community banks stay in business. Former Democratic Congressman Barney Frank agrees. He's the Frank in Dodd-Frank and a former board member of Signature Bank, which was shut down by regulators over the weekend. 2018 didn't say no regulation or weak regulation. It said you wouldn't regulate a bank at 50 billion in assets the same way you would regulate a bank at several trillion. Uh, but they were paying strong power to regulate. Frank told NPR's All Things Considered that he believes investment in cryptocurrency contributed to Signature Bank's collapse. Frank says by shutting down that bank, regulators in New York were sending a message that, in his words, crypto is toxic. Those are two different narratives on what went wrong, both coming from Democrats. Meta is planning a second round of layoffs. That's the parent company of Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp. And it announced yesterday it will cut another 10,000 jobs. This follows 11,000 layoffs at Meta last November. CEO Mark Zuckerberg has said that 2023 will be Meta's, quote, year of efficiency. He also says it will be, in his words, stronger and more nimble. We're joined now by Wall Street Journal technology reporter Sam Schechner. Sam, thanks for coming on. A pleasure to be here. These are a lot of layoffs, but I want to make sure we put it in the overall context of how large Meta is. So tell us, how many employees does it have now? How many will it have left once the layoffs are done? Well, those are those are good questions. Uh, we know the numerator. We don't necessarily know the denominator. At the end of the year, Meta had um, roughly eighty six thousand employees. Uh, most of those uh, who were being laid off, the eleven thousand from last fall, were still on the payroll. The company said. Um, so, if we're going by that, and we add it together, you know, twenty one thousand people being let go, that could be nearly a quarter of Meta's workforce. That's a lot. And and how big a deal do you think that is in terms of the impact it has on the company? Well, I mean, you can see it from people inside the company are anxious. Um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg sends a, a message to staff and it's 2,200 words long. And, you know, there's some mea culpas in there, but there's also this this vision that he's trying to get across uh, of, a, of a, a leaner, more nimble company. And, and he's actually at points in this memo talking about how he thinks it, it will 
and it is making things operate more efficiently, um, more effectively than, than before. During the pandemic, Meta and many other tech companies were just hiring madly. So are these layoffs essentially returning Meta to its pre-pandemic level, or do you see it going deeper than that? Any idea? Well, we'll have to see where it ends up landing. Um, but, you know, Mark Zuckerberg in this memo, what struck me is that he said that this is something that he sees continuing for many years. It's a new economic reality. And that, I think that's a that's a, a real tone shift from the go-go times in at least for the earnings of tech companies during the pandemic, as you said, when Meta was counting on and a lot of tech companies were counting on a fundamental change in the way people operate. And and that hasn't really panned out. But and it might so have now, been just temporary. Well, it, it appears to have been, at least in some ways, temporary. Yeah. Uh, even Meta's reversing its position on remote work in some ways ah. and encouraging people to come back to the office. <laughs> Interesting. You know, Zuckerberg has said things like the layoffs were caused by things like rising interest rates, geopolitical tension, new regulations. Do you, Sam, based on your reporting, buy that? Do you believe that, those reasons? I, I think those confluence of factors certainly are, are playing a role. And I think you mentioned regulations. Um, you know, Meta has to comply with a growing number of, of new rules and regulations. Um, you know, there's, there's new regulations coming into effect in the European Union that are going to require some big changes to how the, how the company operates. Um, there's changes that they've had to make uh, because of, you know, privacy uh, moves by Apple uh, to cut off some of the data that they've been uh, using that have also cut into their revenue. So I think all of those things together uh, are, are factors. Yeah, the, about those privacy settings. So Apple made a change that restricts the amount of data that apps collect. That has apparently hurt Meta's bottom line significantly, something like $10 billion in lost revenue last year. So has Apple really hurt Meta significantly by tweaking iPhone privacy options? I mean, Meta has, you know, gone through an entire internal process to try to cope with these changes. This has been a major, major issue for their advertising business. Um, in more recent quarters, they've said they've begun to see a path to recovery because they're using AI to help make up for some of that lost data, to infer some of the targeting information that they no longer can collect from their users' phones, um, you know. Still, their revenue was down year on year uh, in their most recent yeah. report. Last big picture question, maybe 20 seconds or so. Do you assume that other tech companies internally are now facing the same type of financial pressures Meta says it is? Well, we've seen these kinds of layoffs ripple across Silicon Valley. And I think, you know, we've seen one round at a lot of big companies. May we see more? I think there is definitely pressure from investors and a new you know, the, the era of free money is over for these big tech companies. That's Sam Schechner. He covers technology for The Wall Street Journal. Sam, thank you. A pleasure to be here.
This is NPR News. Good morning. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shunoi. Coming up, Massachusetts employers need workers, but some potential employees say they don't have the tools or training to apply for jobs online. And later on Morning Edition, we hear from Dr. Jim O'Connell. He runs the group Boston Healthcare for the Homeless and will share ideas on how to end the cycle of homelessness some people face. That's coming up at 820 here on 90.9 WBUR and on the W. WBUR mobile app. Right now, it's 720. I'm Steve Inskeep. Around the world, our co-host Leila Fadel has been reporting from Ukraine. In your community, workers are unionizing in fields where they haven't always had a big presence. And farther afield, think really far, like Six, out of this world. Five. And liftoff of Artemis 1. Morning Edition from NPR News takes you wherever the story is. Listen every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design, laurenholleran.com. And Tanglewood and the Boston Symphony Orchestra. A trip to Tanglewood this summer opens a world of possibilities. Tickets on sale at bso.org slash Tanglewood. A chance of rain this morning, then mostly cloudy with a high near 44. Tonight, mostly clear with a low around 31. It'll be windy. Tomorrow, it grows increasingly cloudy and we'll have highs around 50. It's 36 degrees in Boston at 721. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from the law firm Cooley LLP, with offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world, where innovation meets the law. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Employers across Massachusetts say they have a lot of jobs to fill, but not enough applicants. Most businesses require people to apply online, including those paying minimum wages. And as Nancy Cohen reports, employers may be missing out on people who don't have the digital know-how to apply. 29 employers perch, ready, sitting behind tables at a job fair at Greenfield Community College. One has five positions to fill, another 50. With a labor shortage, people applying for jobs should be in the driver's seat, but that hasn't been the case for Jesse Morrison. It's a challenge. <laughs> That's all I can say, doing the stuff online. doesn't always go smooth. Morrison, from Vernon, Vermont, spent more than half of his 51 years driving a propane truck. He he wants to work. He has a computer and internet, but got stuck at first uploading a job application. One said it had to be in a PDF form, you know, when you tried to upload it, and, and it just, you know, and you're like, what is that? You know, what kind of paper is that? But I kept saying, oh, wouldn't do it because it wasn't one. Pershing Reed from Orange is also here hoping to find work. He's 72, drove an MBTA bus in Boston, and is looking for a job driving a van or a bus. Well, I went to the site, and I seen the site of the company, but it just 
it didn't tell me how to get on. Because it didn't tell me how to get on, I couldn't apply. Reed even visited the company in person, but they just sent him back to their website. Crystal Fish is an HR manager at another company, Mativ, a plastics manufacturer in Greenfield with 15 open positions. She says if an applicant is having problems, she'd be happy to help them out, but... We haven't had anybody that's had problems applying to our website, or at least not that we've been made aware of. In fact, most recruiters at this job fair say they haven't even heard of the problem. But Maura Geary, who organized the fair, knows it well. She heads up the Franklin Hampshire Career Center. Some people truly can't access the online application itself, so they need to be walked through the online application. Geary's staff includes a digital navigator who offers job seekers three one-hour lessons on basics like setting up an email account and uploading a resume. If there's a virtual interview, which a lot of first interviews are virtual, we do trainings to get them up to speed on all of the different workforce tools that are necessary to get a job. And some, of course, also lack the digital skills to do the job. In the last couple of years, the Career Center has has given away 592 Chromebooks, and if a job seeker can't afford internet access, the center will help them apply for a federal program that can help pay for it. Compared to the rest of the state, Franklin and Hampshire counties have more job seekers with disabilities, and slightly more who are 55 or over, some of whom, Geary says, face digital challenges. We definitely work with mature workers who face technology barriers and also some age frankly, in their search for new careers. Besides older adults, the digital divide disproportionately affects people with some disabilities, lower incomes, less education, or those who are English language learners, along with people who live in a place that lacks internet infrastructure. And in Western Mass, according to the U.S. Census, Hampton County has the biggest percentage of households without a computer. These digital barriers came to a head about three years ago when a new verb entered the national lexicon to Zoom. We're locked in, locked down. If I'm having trouble connecting, what about our consumers, residents, patients? How are they connecting to services? That's Frank Robinson, a VP at Bay State Health. His concern wasn't just about patients needing medical appointments. How do you get food? How do you get in those days, protective equipment, all that stuff was online. And if people weren't connected online, they were just outside of any kind of protections. He says the people most affected had experienced disparities before the pandemic. Black, brown, folks living with disabilities, older adults would be also having problems because they already experienced significant inequities. Being connected and literate in digital tools is what Robinson calls a civil right and a human right. If you don't have that level of proficiency, then you can't fully participate in society. In the summer of 2020, Robinson convened a meeting of concerned groups in Western Mass. Now, 30 organizations strong, they call themselves the Alliance for Digital Equity. They include library schools and at least one affordable housing provider. 
It's Tuesday night. About 10 students are finishing their second computer course offered by Wayfinders in Holyoke. Tonight, the topic is finances and digital tools that help people budget. 58-year-old Jose Angel Hernandez says before he took the first course, he tried to submit job applications using his phone. Primeramente, no tenía la computadora. Trataba de hacerlo en el celular, pero era imposible. It was hard to see, a common problem for job seekers whose only device is a phone. As part of the course, Wayfinders gave each student a Chromebook. Hernandez is practically hugging his. Hernandez took his first computer course last summer. By November, he had submitted a job application online. I got the job. You look so happy. Yes, because I love this job. I like to help. I love it. He works at an office for WIC, the food program for women, infants, and children. Not only that, but now he says he can shop, pay his bills, check his bank account online, and have telehealth appointments with his mother's doctor. And now he has email. Y me di cuenta de lo importante que era para mí, porque esto te abre la mente, te abre los ojos. Hernandez says using a computer has helped him discover the world. His classmate, 59-year-old Grisel Monserrate, says having digital skills makes her feel sure of herself. Monserrate takes care of her mother, who has Alzheimer's, and she runs a support group for other Spanish-speaking caregivers. Her new computer skills allow her to do so much more for the group. She's happy to be able to use the internet to help others, and she hopes to use these skills to start a daycare for children in her home. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nancy Cohen. Coming up here on WBUR's Morning Edition, we have the growing divide among Republicans over U.S. support of Ukraine. And an estimated 1.7 million people in Florida will soon lose their Medicaid coverage. There's no help from the government in sight. It's 729. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The Biden administration is condemning yesterday's incident over the Black Sea, where the Pentagon says a Russian fighter jet clipped the propeller of a U.S. surveillance drone, forcing it down. Moscow disputes that. Anatoly Antonov is Russia's ambassador to the U.S. He says Moscow does not want a confrontation with Washington. We are in favor of pragmatic relations for the sake for the interest of the uh, people of the United States and Russian Federation. Russia says the drone ended up in the Black Sea after it carried out what it calls sharp maneuvers. The FAA is holding a safety summit today to examine several recent close calls involving planes at U.S. airports. NPR's David Shaper says the head of the National Transportation Safety Board and Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg are expected to take part. 
In a couple of the recent incidents, airplanes were cleared to take off and land on the same runway at nearly the same time. In another, a charter plane pilot ignored an order to hold and wait and went onto a runway to take off just as another jet was coming in to land. In each instance, the landing jets had to pull up and fly around to avert disaster. The NTSB is calling for better technology at airports to notify pilots and air traffic control when there is any such runway incursion. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Some central Massachusetts communities are digging out from a massive snowstorm this morning. The National Weather Service reports more than two feet fell in Ashby, Paxton, and Princeton. There are more than 30,000 power outages statewide, and the worst are in those communities north of Worcester. In Boston, there's barely an inch to brush off the car this morning. At Logan Airport, FlightAware reports there are 34 canceled flights so far today. The Massachusetts auditor says she hasn't received a response yet from the state, House, or Senate. Diana DeZoglio announced last week that she would audit the legislature for the first time in a century. Neither side of Beacon Hill has said if they'll cooperate with an audit. DeZoglio will discuss this more at 11 on WBUR's Radio Boston. The city of Boston is dropping its COVID vaccine mandate for two first responder unions. As part of a legal settlement, the city said it would not enforce the mandate for members of the Boston Firefighters Union and Police Superior Officers Union. Mayor Michelle Wu put the mandate in place for all city employees in December 2021. Both unions filed lawsuits weeks later. The city says no employees were ever disciplined for violating the requirement. It's 7.32. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. The Bruins fell to the Blackhawks last night in Chicago. The final was 6-3. to three. The Bees will visit the Winnipeg Jets tomorrow. The Celtics will be in Minnesota tonight to play the Timberwolves. And at spring training in Florida yesterday, the Red Sox lost to the Tigers 6-2. to two. The Sox will play the Rays this afternoon. Mostly cloudy and breezy today in the low to mid-40s. Tonight, skies clear and temperatures fall to the low 30s. Tomorrow, clouds move in throughout the day and It'll be warmer near 50. It's 35 degrees in Boston at Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from BritBox with the new series Beyond Paradise, Detective Humphrey Goodman solves crimes on the English coast in this new spin off of Death in Paradise. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. There's a very public split within the Republican Party over whether the U.S. should continue to arm Ukraine to fight Russia. 
And that could become an even bigger issue as Republicans decide who should be their candidate for president in 2024. NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez is with us this morning in the studio to talk about this rift. Hi, Franco. Hey, Sasha. This divide among Republicans came to light in a noteworthy way. Yeah, I mean, interestingly, it came from uh, Tucker Carlson on Fox News, a show that's popular with Republicans. You know, he surveyed all the people who are seen as potential Republican candidates for president about Ukraine. And the big news came from Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. He said the war was not in the U.S. interests and basically downplayed it as a spat over territory and boundaries. He seems to be playing off of polls that show American support for the war is weakening, especially among Republicans. And that's really significant because he's seen as one of the biggest challengers to former President Donald Trump for the Republican nomination. And how does DeSantis's opinion compare to Trump's opinion on this issue? Well, Trump's long sought to pull the United States back from other countries' wars, and he too is questioning how much of the war is in U.S. interests. He says it's more in Europe's interests and is pushing for Europe to take on more of the burden for paying for the war. And what about other Republicans? Is there a totally different view within the party? There is. I mean, former Vice President Mike Pence is an example of some of the presidential or the potential presidential candidates who are coming on the other side. He's taken a more traditional stance and pushed the U.S. to do more against Russia. Nikki Haley, who was Trump's ambassador to the U.N., has a similar view. And they're aligned with Republican Senate leader Mitch McConnell and much of the Republican establishment. McConnell has actually been trying to downplay the split that's emerged in the party. You know, but all that's really going to be harder to do now that the two frontrunners of the party's leader both oppose U.S. support for the war. And yesterday, there was actually some very public infighting. Senator Marco Rubio, for example, went on conservative radio to complain that DeSantis wasn't taking this seriously enough. But even some Ukraine supporters have concerns, wanting more clarity on Biden's long-term goals and an explanation of what winning actually looks like. So, Franco, tell us how this could affect two things. First, the 2024 presidential race, and then Ukraine. Obviously, very high stakes for Ukraine. Yeah, very high stakes. And I talked about this a bit with Ryan Williams. He's a Republican strategist. You know, he told me that the views of DeSantis and Trump resonate with a lot of Republican voters. When you're speaking to voters who, you know, are rightfully concerned about issues in the United States, you know, banks failing or crumbling infrastructure and trains derailing, a huge immigration issue, it's easy to say, why are we sending money abroad to something that doesn't affect your daily life when things that are affecting your daily life in America are not the way you want them to be? You know, and he says it's harder to make the strategic argument that their money should go to this fight that's so far away. You know, why it's important to support allies and push back on dictators, for example. The reality, though, is that the foreign policy issues are not typically what move people at the ballot box. But this is kind of turning into a domestic issue. And Williams says voters are comparing the spending overseas to the economic problems here in the U.S., Now, Biden says the U.S. will back Ukraine as long as it takes. That's meant more than $112 billion in military and economic aid. That's supposed to last through the summer. But there's no sign the war is going to be over and Ukraine is going to need more help. And all that's going to coincide with the 2024 campaign kicking into high gear. That's NPR's Franco Ordonez. Franco, thank you. Thank you, Sasha. Millions of people will start seeing notices next month 
that their health care coverage is going away. The Biden administration's decision to end the COVID public health emergency also ends a temporary expansion of the Medicaid program. In Florida, state officials expect more than one and a half million people to lose coverage. As NPR's Greg Allen reports, Florida is one of 11 states that declined to accept the federal government's regular Medicaid coverage. When the COVID pandemic took hold in early 2020, Kristen Garner, like many Americans, found herself suddenly without a job. She had been working as a server at a restaurant on the beach in Pensacola. She applied for unemployment and food stamps and found that with no income, she now qualified for health insurance under Medicaid. It was awesome. I was able to go get my teeth cleaned. I was able to get x-rays done. It was great. It was a big help. Garner is a single mom with a 10-year-old son. Florida has some of the nation's toughest restrictions on who's eligible for Medicaid. Because of that, it's second only to Texas in the large number of people who are uninsured. At the start of the pandemic, Congress passed a bill signed into law by President Biden that prevented anyone from being disenrolled from Medicaid. That means once you qualified, you kept your coverage even after you went back to work. Now, with the public health emergency expiring, states can begin kicking people off Medicaid. In Florida, the administration of Governor Ron DeSantis says the first group of notifications to some 900,000 people will start going out in April. Holly Bullard is with the Florida Policy Institute. We know a large portion of those 900,000 cases that a lot of those folks will be falling back into the coverage gap. Kristen Garner may be one of those people. She's back doing her job as a restaurant server, but she makes too much to qualify for Medicaid, and it may be too little to be eligible for coverage through the Affordable Care Act. She worries she may lose something most people take for granted. Just being able to pay to go see a doctor, being able to pay for medications. Officials in Florida say they're working to make sure people know their Medicaid coverage is ending and helping them find other options if they're available. But Allison Yeager with the Florida Health Justice Project says it's a massive undertaking. This is going to be the biggest bureaucratic challenge that states around the country have faced for their Medicaid programs in decades. Officials call it Medicaid unwinding. Eventually, they say close to 2 million people may be disenrolled in Florida, leaving many of them without a health plan. With hundreds of thousands of people soon losing coverage, healthcare advocates and Democrats in Florida have renewed a push for the state to expand eligibility for Medicaid. Republicans who control the legislature have consistently blocked Medicaid expansion and have made no moves to change course in the current session. In many of the 39 states that have adopted it, Yeager says Medicaid expansion has been bipartisan and it's yielded good results. Every state Red states, blue states, purple states that have expanded Medicaid have found it to be a good deal for the state's coffers and, more importantly, a good deal for the state's residents. In North Carolina, after years of resisting it, the Republican-led legislature now is poised to pass a Medicaid expansion bill. In South Dakota, overcoming resistance from the Republican governor and lawmakers, voters in November expanded Medicaid coverage through a referendum. That may be a model for Florida. Several healthcare advocacy groups are working together to put a similar initiative on the ballot in Florida in 2026. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami.
This is NPR News. Coming up next on Morning Edition, we visit a recreational spot in Minnesota where volunteers are creating columns of ice that people can climb. And in our next hour, President Biden visited Monterey Park yesterday to meet with the families of shooting victims and announce an executive order strengthening regulations on gun sales. That story is coming up at 8.15. Back to the low to mid-40s today under mostly cloudy skies. It'll also be a bit windy. Tonight, low 30s and skies clear overnight. Tomorrow, clouds move in throughout the day. It'll be windy with temperatures that may reach near 50. It's 36 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Build entrepreneurial skills and make an impact with a Babson MBA. Apply by March 16th to start this fall. Babson.edu slash MBA. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design. Accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com. Weymouth-based South Shore Bank and Dedham Savings Bank are joining forces. The two announced the merger yesterday. Each bank and its branches will keep its own name and largely operate independently. Leaders say the deal will combine their resources and help them better serve customers. Tewksbury-based Covenant Health is calling off a proposed acquisition of Connecticut's Day Kimball Healthcare. Some groups oppose the buyout on grounds that the Catholic-run Covenant would create barriers to transgender and reproductive care. Covenant did not give a specific reason for pulling out of the deal. It said religious and ethical directives were not at play. Backdoor Donuts is opening a late-night location in Boston's Fenway neighborhood tonight. The beloved Martha's Vineyard Donut Shop is opening the pop-up in partnership with Country Bar, Loretta's Last Call. The shop will serve treats from 7 p.m. to 2 a.m. each night. It's 7.44. Almost 4,000 veterans live unhoused in Los Angeles County. Now, a small number have moved into housing on a gated campus run by the Department of Veterans Affairs. It really makes you see the promise of what it could be if the VA was following through more quickly on all of the housing it promised there. It's the topic of the new podcast, City of Tents, Veterans Row. More on All Things Considered from NPR News. Starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Select Quote. For over 35 years, Select Quote has been committed to helping customers find life insurance that fits their budget. Customers can shop multiple life insurance carriers and compare rates at selectquote.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an all-in-one hiring platform with tools to help businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates they need to fill all their job openings. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. For farmers, spring planting season is about to begin. In Minnesota, though, it's been a long, snowy winter. But that means it's still cold enough to grow an unusual crop. It's ice that people can climb. Dan Crocker of Minnesota Public Radio reports. Oh, gosh. Brandy Arredondo grabs two curved ice axes and warily approaches a frozen cliff face. Super nervous, yeah. Her friend Juliet had talked her into trying ice climbing for the first time. Okay, so hold on to the ice axes, one in each hand. Okay. Yes. 
She swings an axe until it sticks in the glistening sheet of ice. Then she kicks in her crampons, metal spikes on her boots that stick into the ice. She slowly works her way up the vertical wall of ice about 10 feet or so until her hands get too cold to continue. Should I lower you? Yes. Okay. Back on solid ground, Arredondo says she'd definitely try it again once her hands warm up. Oh, it was very hard, yeah, but I enjoyed it. It was fun. People have climbed here in this abandoned rock quarry in Duluth since the early 1980s, an ice that formed when water seeped down the 100-foot-tall cliff. But the natural ice was inconsistent. So over the past couple years, a group of local climbers installed an irrigation system that pumps water to the top of the cliff. From here all the way to the top, it's underground. Head ice farmer Nick Fleming points out where volunteers buried a water line by hand along the edge of the quarry. So that's a thousand feet of pipe that's all underground. All this for ice climbing, huh? All this for ice climbing. Irrigation heads along the top of the cliff spray water down the rock, which freezes into thick pillars and columns of ice. Fleming works 24-hour shifts as a firefighter. When he's off, he's usually here farming ice with other volunteers or tinkering with the system. We took what was originally just a partying and dumping area hidden in the woods and we turned it into a recreational spot for everyone to use. Most ice climbing is still done on natural ice in the mountain west and northeast, but word of Minnesota's ice parks is getting out. Last year we had multiple groups that came from Texas, North Carolina, Kansas, Nebraska, Eric Barnard is one of the ice farmers who maintain the Winona Ice Park in southeastern Minnesota on a bluff overlooking the Mississippi River. I always joke like running thousands of feet of pipe filled with water in a Minnesota winter, like what could go wrong, right? The answer, of course, is plenty. The biggest problem is the lines freezing up. All you can do is like laugh about it, like when you're getting sprayed in the face by hundreds of gallons of water a minute and you're soaked and covered in ice, it's really absurd. The first ice farming system in the country was installed 28 years ago at the Ure Ice Park in southwestern Colorado. Now four full-time farmers maintain routes that draw more than 20,000 climbers from around the world every year. Executive Director Peter O'Neill says he's thrilled to see the growth in ice climbing parks. I think that's fantastic, right? I mean, the, the more people that you can introduce to ice climbing and that discover an outdoor recreational pursuit that they can do in the winter, is great. He says one of the hardest parts about ice climbing is finding a place to do it. Minnesota seems to be addressing that challenge and now has three city-owned parks featuring volunteer-run ice farming systems. Climbers here say that's more than any other state in the country. For NPR News, I'm Dan Crocker in Duluth, Minnesota. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, we hear from the 22-year-old from Cape Cod who's being called a rising star about to take the music world by storm. Then at 11, it's Radio Boston, and Tiziana Deering is here to give us a preview. Good morning, Tiziana. Happy hump day. Happy hump day, Rupa. Actually, there was so much I want to tell you about, but I got a clue in on this, key in on that Duluth, Minnesota reference. Mm -hmm. Because this weekend, Northeastern Women's ice hockey team is going to be in Duluth. They've made the Frozen Four yep. for their third time in a row. And they have a member of the team who scored a goal in the Olympic bronze medal game for her country when she was 14. 
Wow. Right? So exciting, exciting team. As soon as I heard Duluth, I'm like, oh, wait, we got to tell everybody. So it'll be fun to see how the Northeastern women do this weekend. Thanks for sharing that. I had no idea. Yeah. No, we just found it. We talked to him this week. It was very exciting. Today, we're going to talk to Diana DiZaglio, state auditor. Um, And I know you know she's causing a lot of stir with her decision to audit the state legislature. Very intentionally causing a stir. Exactly. So we'll talk to her about the constitutional questions with that, uh, her sense of her authority, what she's trying to accomplish, what she's heard. We'll also do a from the newsroom on the banking, uh, you know, the banking crisis and the BSO. So it's going to be a full show today. Yeah, Beth Healy on the banking crisis. Yes, our own Beth Healy. That's right. That was some great reporting. I'm I'm glad you're exploring it more. Thank you, Tiziana. Thanks, Rupa. That's Radio Boston today at 11 at 751. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Simon & Schuster, publisher of Master, Slave, Husband, Wife, An Epic Journey from Slavery to Freedom by Ilyan Wu, the true story of an enslaved couple's daring escape. Available now. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Member Mornings FDIC. Mornings are darkest time of year, and the news can feel that way too. Morning Edition from NPR News helps keep you informed, not overwhelmed. Listen for a brighter start to your day. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Leila Faldin. When our colleagues at NPR Music had this to say about a new album, we paid attention. I don't think you're going to find more contrasts in a single record, maybe all year. We're going to be coming back to this at the end of 2023 and say, was there a more arresting debut? So we had to know more about Tiana Esperanza. I love them ghetto. Oh, I do. But sometimes that means I got a little more work to do. Let's get you ready. Let's get you ready. Let me buy you a new attitude. That one's called Buy You a New Attitude. The song and video borrow some style from the 1940s. First of all, I need to know how old you are. Well, some people say I'm 60 or 65 or 100, but I'm 22. Tiana Esperanza has packed a lot of living into those 22 years. In their childhood, they endured multiple traumas. Those wounds make it onto the album Terror. And at times, they make for some heavy listening. But this song, it's just pure fun. I'm not used to writing very fun songs. (laughs) So, like, that's my personality and being raunchy and being fun. It's funny, I met somebody who said, I, I can't believe you're so nice. <laughs> After they had heard Terror, they, they thought that I was going to be a mean person. <laughs> so I was just going to ask you about Terror. Speaking of a not fun song, yeah. you know, when I, was listen- when I was first listening to it, I was kind of more listening to just the music before the lyrics really set into my head. So it's this sort of almost sweet track, like a Renaissance-style music. And then you hear what you're saying. Sometimes when I... And a man looks at me I think of all the ways I could make him bleed Um, I just want to ask you, you know, where this song came from. What terror in your life inspired this song that really, I mean, it stays with you. When I was eight years old, my brother passed away. And when I was 
13, many times in my life I've experienced sexual assault and abuse, and I'm bringing these stories out slowly with my own, in my own comfort and, and mm-hmm. using it to transcend my pain yeah. and connect with others. talk about Cape Cod. You grew up there. Not necessarily known for its extreme diversity. Um, (laughs) So I I wonder what it was like growing up as a biracial kid and then how that place influenced your music. As I grow older, I love Cape Cod more and more. Yeah. It's one of the most beautiful places in the world while also having this political backdrop of white flight from the 60s, the um, segregation on Cape Cod. It's so apparent there. How old were you when, you when you started noticing that? Yeah, I think when I discovered Louis H. Michaud, say right before high school or high school age. And that's the civil rights activist, the bookseller that inspired your song, Louis. Yes. Now Louis owned a little bookstore in Harlem. And one day while he was sitting in his bookstore, some black boys came in with their fists up screaming, Black Power! Black Power! I found the Black Power mixtape is a Swedish documentary of the civil rights movement in the 60s. And they got really rare and incredible footage of Angela Davis and all these wonderful activists, including a man named Louis H. Michaud. he was speaking a poem that he had written, a short poem. Black is beautiful, but black isn't power. Knowledge is power. For you can be black as a crow, you can be white as snow, and if you don't know and ain't got no dough, you can't go, and that's for sure. Yeah. Because you can be as black as a crow. You can be as white as snow. You um, were quoted in another interview saying you were yearning for some sort of black mentorship and influence when you discovered him. What were you searching for? Well, I didn't grow up with my father very much. And and my father is African-American and indigenous. Mm -hmm. And my family is white from Spain and from England. They were very good about trying to fill in some of those gaps, but there's only so much they could do and understand. And I was yearning for black friends and understanding how to do my black hair and not having products on Cape Cod and things like that. Yeah. I still, in many ways, yearn for black mentorship. Does that influence any of the collaborations you did? I was just thinking of Valerie June. I wondered how you two met and how you ended up collaborating. We met through kind of a family friend. Valerie June became my mentor for a summer. Wow. And um, we talked about 
our love for folk music especially right and how that is very misunderstood on many sides and that that's okay and that's still very much black <laughs> so so do you get pushback sometimes for for delving into folk music i feel like that's still not very expected of from a black woman from a black woman mm -hmm. i feel like there's still a mindset of what we are good for <laughs> is, you know, silky runs and R&B mm. and, you know, curvaceous dresses. And that's what that's what sells. And that's mm. an absolute. And I think that there's so much more to our stories and to to us, our tastes. Faith got strength rising. Tiana Esperanza, their debut album is called Terror. Thank you so much, Tiana. Thank you, Layla, for having me. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Layla Faldil. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. I'm Tiziana Deering, host of Radio Boston. And if your day is as hectic as mine, it's not a problem. Because you can download the new and improved WBUR app and never miss a minute of live radio. You can pause and rewind Radio Boston. You can start from the top of the hour, all on your schedule. Listen to all your favorite shows when and how you want. Get the new WBUR app in your app store today. I'm All Things Considered host Lisa Mullins, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. U.S. and Russian officials are trading accusations after a Russian jet collided with an American drone over the Black Sea. It's Wednesday, March 15th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, a federal judge in Texas with deep ties to conservative religious groups hears arguments in a case that could decide access to a key abortion pill. Now, whatever the judge does will likely be appealed, and it's very possible that this case will end up before the Supreme Court. Plus, a new book profiles Dr. Jim O'Connell, the pioneering founder of the Boston Healthcare for the Homeless program. Also this hour. I never want to quit rodeoing. I just want to teach my kids how to ride and train and feel it just like me. How some families in western Kansas are trying to preserve their rural lifestyle. In sports, the Bruins lose mostly cloudy in the 40s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Korva Coleman. Russia's ambassador to the U.S. says Moscow views the incident involving Russian fighter jets and a U.S. military drone over the Black Sea as a provocation. NPR's Giles Snyder reports both sides differ on what happened. The Pentagon says the drone was in international airspace when it was intercepted by two Russian fighter jets over the Black Sea, and that one of the planes struck the drone's propeller, causing the U.S. military to crash it in international waters. The U.S. calls the intercept unsafe and unprofessional, but the Russian ambassador to Washington, Anatoly Antonov, denies the Russian plane collided with the drone, and after being summoned to the State Department, he said Russia does not want confrontation. We are in favor of pragmatic relations for the sake, for the interest of the uh, people of the United States and Russian Federation. The incident happened near the Crimean Peninsula, which Russia seized in 2014 and illegally annexed. 
Giles Snyder, NPR News. A federal judge in Texas with deep ties to conservative religious groups will hear arguments this morning in a case that could determine the future availability of a common abortion pill. From Amarillo, NPR's Sarah McCammon reports there's been a debate over access to the hearing. The hearing comes amidst clashes between the judge, the media, and government watchdog groups over the public's right to hear the arguments play out in court. Judge Matthew Kaczmarek, who was appointed by former President Trump, rejected a request to live stream the hearing. A coalition of abortion rights opponents is asking Kaczmarek to force the Food and Drug Administration to take the abortion pill Mifepristone off the market. It's used in most medication abortions in the U.S. Each side will have two hours to present their arguments. Sarah McCammon, NPR News, Amarillo. Some Democratic lawmakers in Congress say the easing of regulations under then-President Trump contributed to the collapse of California's Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank in New York. NPR's Dustin Jones has more. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer was quick to praise President Biden and the Fed for preventing the spread of a larger financial crisis over the weekend. But... Senator Elizabeth Warren, a Massachusetts Democrat, says these bank collapses were avoidable and that Congress and the Fed are to blame, referencing a 2018 rollback in bank restrictions. Despite promises by both Biden and the Fed that taxpayers won't foot the bill, at least one Republican remains doubtful. Senator James Lankford of Oklahoma says he's worried those costs will be passed on through what he calls backdoor tax increases. There is currently no prohibition preventing banks from recouping any assessments by charging their customers an additional fee. Dustin Jones, NPR News. Meanwhile, stock futures are plunging in pre-market trading on Wall Street. Dow futures are down more than 1.5%. The stock of Swiss bank Credit Suisse has fallen about 25%. This is NPR. The president of Honduras says her country will seek out formal ties with China and sever ties with the island of Taiwan. The move would leave Taiwan with only 13 formal allies. NPR's Emily Fang reports it's part of China's effort to isolate Taiwan diplomatically. Honduras's president, Xiomara Castro, said in a statement on Twitter that she had instructed her foreign minister to establish formal ties with Beijing. The Central American country was one of Taiwan's few remaining allies. For the last four decades, China has been steadily convincing most countries around the world to recognize it as the formal government of China and not Taiwan. Honduras is the ninth country Beijing has persuaded since 2016, often through political and economic levers, to switch ties from Taiwan to China. That diplomatic onslaught has fenced Taiwan out of having representation on most multinational institutions as well, such as the World Health Organization and the United Nations. Emily Fang, NPR News, Taipei, Taiwan. Nearly 250 people have died in eastern Africa from Cyclone Freddy. Most of the dead are in Malawi. The powerful tropical storm made landfall a second time in neighboring Mozambique last weekend. The storm first made landfall last month before circling around and striking the region again. The National Weather Service says California will soon get relief from the heavy storm that has been pounding the state. Flooding has forced evacuations in some California counties. That includes Monterey County, where workers are still trying to plug a breached levee. The resulting flooding has inundated hundreds of homes. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. In Boston and along the coast, you might not even need a shovel to clear the snow this morning. Most areas got about an inch. It's a much different story in central Mass. The National Weather Service reports the town of Ashby got 30 inches of snow yesterday. 24 inches fell in Gardner and Worcester got more than a foot. All of that wet, heavy snow has led to more than 29,000 power outages statewide. Eversource spokesperson Chris McKinnon is asking drivers for their, for their cooperation in getting the lights back on. As we start going back out, people start getting on the roads again. Just make sure that, you know, you keep our crews in mind. They're out there doing their work along the side roads oftentimes. And so if you are traveling, if you can just move over, slow down, give them rooms to make sure that they stay safe. FlightAware reports more than 30 flights in and out of Logan Airport had already been canceled this morning. Massachusetts has regulated the toxic chemicals known as PFAS in drinking water since 2020. Now, for the first time, the Federal Environmental Protection Agency is proposing nationwide limits on those so-called forever chemicals. Massachusetts has spent millions on PFAS testing and cleanup. And as WBWAR's Barbara Moran reports, the new regulations make push the cost to the state even higher. Treating PFAS in drinking water is not cheap. Some towns have already spent close to $30 million on cleanup. Jennifer Peterson is with the Massachusetts Waterworks Association. While treatment is possible, treatment is expensive. The federal government is giving the state $38 million to help clean up PFAS in drinking water. But Peterson says it could cost a lot more. And new federal rules will likely lead to stricter state regulations. And so when we have to deal with new regulations like this, some of the other really important public health items get pushed back. For instance, you know, replacing pipe that's 100 years old. The new federal rules should be finalized by the end of the year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. Mobile sports betting is off to a popular start in Massachusetts. Betting regulators say over 400,000 accounts were created since online betting was legalized last Friday. That made the state the fifth busiest for mobile betting in the country. Gaming officials expect betting online to become the most popular method of sports wagering in the state. It's 8.08. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington, hooking up with Front Porch Arts Collective to present K-I-S-S-I-N-G, a funny date night play and love letter to our city, written by Linnell Moyes and directed by Don M. Simmons, now through April 2nd at the Huntington Calderwood BCA. Tickets available at HuntingtonTheater.org. The Bruins lost to the Blackhawks 6-3 last night in Chicago. The Bees will visit the Winnipeg Jets tomorrow. Tonight, the Celtics will visit the Minnesota Timberwolves. Mostly cloudy and breezy today. Temperatures will get into the lower 40s. Partly cloudy overnight. It'll get down to the lower 30s. Mostly sunny tomorrow and in the upper 40s. It's 36 degrees in Boston at 8.09. WBUR supporters include Hint maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Available in more than 25 flavors, including watermelon and pineapple. In stores or delivered from hintwater.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Layla Falden. A Texas federal judge is hearing arguments this morning in a case that could limit access to a drug widely used for medication abortions. That pill is part of a two-drug protocol that's often the most accessible option for people in states with abortion restrictions. NPR's Sarah McCammon is in Amarillo and joins us now. Hi, Sarah. 
Hi, Leela. So if you could just start by reminding us what this case is about and what's at stake here. Yeah, it's about an abortion pill called Mifepristone and whether or not the drug can stay on the market. It was first approved by the Food and Drug Administration more than 20 years ago. Major medical groups like the American Medical Association say it is conclusively safe and effective, but the drug has always been the subject of political debate and medication abortion has become the dominant form of abortion in this country in recent years. So a coalition of groups who oppose abortion sued the FDA last year. They claim the drug was improperly approved and they've asked a federal judge here in Amarillo, where this case was filed, to overturn turn the FDA approval. So really a lot at stake here in a closely watched case. What do we know about the judge who's overseeing it? So his name is Judge Matthew Kaczmarek, and he has a lot of critics, and that is based on his track record. He was appointed by former President Donald Trump. He has longstanding ties to conservative religious groups, and his critics accused the anti-abortion group that filed this lawsuit of judge shopping. You know, a law professor I spoke to at the University of Texas, Austin, says that because of the way the federal courts work here, Layla, by filing in Amarillo, the plaintiffs were virtually assured of getting Judge Kaczmarek assigned to the case. And what are you expecting to happen at the hearing today? Well, this is all happening, first of all, after some big clashes over issues related to press access to the hearing. Okay. The Washington Post reported over the weekend that Judge Kaczmarek had secretly scheduled the hearing but delayed announcing it publicly and that he told lawyers involved in the case to keep the details private. According to that report, he claimed that he was worried about protests and security. So a coalition of media groups objected to the delay on First Amendment grounds. The notice ultimately did get posted to the court's public docket on Monday, so just two days before the hearing. I should also say there will be no recording allowed in the courtroom. So, Layla, the effect of all of these rules and delays is that there will be very limited public access and very limited access for the press to these proceedings. A court official told me this is a small courtroom and members of the press will be allowed in until it's full, you know, with our notebooks and pretty much nothing else. And each side will have two hours to present their arguments. Okay, so you found out on Monday and, and then got on a plane yesterday, right? So it's hopefully you get in. Yeah, that's the goal. So the judge will hear from both sides today. What's likely to happen next? Well, Judge Kaczmarek has a few options here, aside from, you know, just leaving the drug on the market. Mifepristone is subject to some additional FDA rules on top of typical prescription drugs. And the Biden administration pared back some of those rules in recent years. The judge could just put them back in place, for example, stopping the pills from being sent by mail, which became popular during the pandemic. Or he could order the FDA to take the drug off the market altogether. Now, whatever the judge does, Layla, will likely be appealed. And it's very possible that this case will end up before the Supreme Court. NPR's Sarah McCammon reporting from Amarillo, Texas. Thank you so much. And I'm sure we'll hear more from you. Thank you. That kidnapping of four Americans in a Mexican border town and the murder of two of them has not been good for U.S.-Mexico relations. Drug cartels are blamed for that violence. Now some members of Congress want the U.S. military to destroy Mexican drug labs. But Mexico's president blames America's fentanyl problem on the U.S. itself. Dan Restrepo worries about what this means for our relationship with Mexico. He advised President Obama on Latin American affairs. He's now at the Center for American Progress. Good morning, Dan, and thanks for waking up early for us. Morning. Good to be with you. Dan, you have suggested that maybe we have taken for granted that Mexico will always basically be a a stable neighbor, you know, that it's a border country that certainly has some problems, but that will mostly be a reliable democracy. But seeing those 
Americans who were going down there for cosmetic surgery caught in a shootout between drug cartels was very startling. What do you think that, those killings, and the leadership style of Mexico's current president means about whether we are taking our relationship with Mexico for granted? Well, we definitely take our relationship with Mexico for granted. It's one of our largest trading partners. There's a million legal border crossings every day, a billion dollars in trade every day. It's kind of in the background for most Americans until something breaks through, something like the kidnappings in Matamoros last week, uh, something like protests around democratic backsliding in Mexico. Uh, So we're at a critical moment in the U.S.-Mexico relationship where we need to take it more seriously. Uh, And we need to understand that things that we do in the United States have profound impacts on Mexico and things that happen in Mexico have profound impacts on the United States and treat the relationship accordingly. And if we don't take it seriously and we continue to take it for granted, what kind of impacts could we see on, on trade, on tourism, on politics? What's the practical effect? I think negative practical effects kind of across the board, right? We have a number of trade disputes right now with Mexico on the importation by Mexico of corn from the United States that could hit farmers real hard on energy companies, a bunch of renewable energy companies and investors from the United States in Mexico have been under attack by the current government in Mexico. And again, this is the number two trading partner last year for the United States in the world. Previous year, it was number one. Every year since the 1980s, it's been in the top three. Um, So every American is a stakeholder in the U.S.-Mexico relationship in multiple ways. Um, And the things that corrode the relationship will appear in our supermarkets and in our politics and in day-to-day life, pretty much unlike any other relationship that we have in the, in the world right now. On the issue of whether Mexico or the U.S. are more responsible for the U.S. fentanyl problem, the U.S. says the drugs mostly come from Mexico, but Mexico's president says it's due to American social decay. That's how we put it. What's your take on that blame game? Uh, The blame game is politics. The opioid crisis is a serious one um, that has profoundly and negatively affected millions of Americans. 100,000 overdose deaths uh, last year alone. It's a crisis that began on prescription pads in the United States, but now very much has a component that runs through Mexico. A lot of fentanyl is uh, manufactured in Mexico with uh, precursor chemicals from China, uh, and others are trafficked through Mexico. So it's not an either or. Um, It's a both. There's responsibility on both sides of the border. But it's also important that politicians on both sides of the border treat this responsibly. And when you say it's politics, do you mean that some people are using it to their advantage to play to the base? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Again, on both sides of the border. Um, Mexico does a lot of work in American politics. um, And the United States does a fair amount of work in Mexican politics. Um, And unfortunately, when we're in moments like the one we find ourselves in today, um, that political noise gets in the way of good decision making uh, and the hard policy choices that need to be made in both countries um, so that we can all be better off. What advice would you give the Biden administration on how to strengthen the U.S. relationship with Mexico? Um, Engagement, engagement, engagement. An engagement beyond the current government. Um, There are multiple stakeholders in Mexico that need the touch of the United States government and need kind of constant care and attention in a way that is difficult, but absolutely necessary. That's Dan Restrepo. He was an advisor to President Obama on Latin America and the Caribbean, and he is now with the Center for American Progress. Dan, thank you. Thank you. 
President Biden is taking executive action that he says could keep more guns out of the hands of dangerous people. Biden spoke yesterday in Monterey Park, California, where two months ago, a gunman killed 11 people and injured nine during Lunar New Year celebrations. NPR's Deepa Shivaram reports. The gymnasium at the Boys and Girls Club in Monterey Park was packed. It was the president's first visit since the mass shooting that took place in January. I'm here on behalf of the American people to mourn with you, to pray with you, to let you know you are loved and not alone. Biden shared anecdotes about each of the victims, and later he met privately with the families of those who died. But the president also said he was there to do something about gun violence. We remember and mourn today but I'm here with you today to act. Biden signed an executive order to try to get smaller firearm sellers and online sellers to conduct background checks on someone buying a gun. Last year, more than 31 million background checks took place, according to the FBI. The White House didn't have answers on how many more checks they expect will happen with this new move, but they say it's the closest the U.S. can get to universal background checks without additional legislation from Congress. And there's more. We need to provide more mental health support and grief for grief and trauma. And more financial assistance when a family loses the sole breadwinner. Biden wants the government to step in to help communities impacted by mass shootings, the way FEMA helps after a natural disaster. His executive order also allows the government to name and shame more people who break the rules. And that's a good move, says Greg Jackson, the president of a gun advocacy group called the Community Justice Action Fund. We're excited that there is now a stronger push for accountability to the manufacturers, the industry and the dealers that frankly are profiting off of the pain. In the lead up to 2024, there are political benefits to Biden's executive order as well. Democratic strategist Tori Gavito says Biden's actions help push back on claims that Democrats are soft on crime. People have been looking for leaders to do something on this for so long. She says Biden's background checks will have a lot of appeal across both parties. In an NPR poll from last summer, even 80% of Republican gun owners said they favored universal background checks. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, we hear from author Tracy Kidder and Dr. Jim O'Connell, founder of the Boston Healthcare for the Homeless program. Kidder has a new book out, Profiling O'Connell. It's 820. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Build entrepreneurial skills and make an impact with a Babson MBA. Apply by March 16th to start this fall. Babson.edu slash MBA. And Good News Garage, accepting tax-deductible car donations and providing them to neighbors in need since 1996. Goodnewsgarage.org. A slight chance of rain this morning, then mostly cloudy with a high near 44. It's 36 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station. 
and from Mattress Firm. Whether browsing online or in one of their stores, Mattress Firm is committed to providing personalized service and advice to help people choose the right mattress for their needs. Learn more at mattressfirm.com. And from Subaru, introducing the 2023 Solterra, an all-electric zero-emissions SUV with the standard capability of symmetrical all-wheel drive. Learn more at Subaru.com slash Solterra. And from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. The title of Tracy Kidder's latest book comes from British slang, Rough Sleepers. It's a 19th century term for people who sleep in rough conditions, like on the street. And the book tells the real-life story of Dr. Jim O'Connell, who leads an organization called Boston Healthcare for the Homeless. Most people do not like to use homeless as a noun. It's as an adjective, so it's a it describes a state. Now, the current thing that people say is people experiencing homelessness, and that's kind of the proper way to say it. Now, most important is to make sure we're not stigmatizing or uh, treating people as other than us. For nearly 40 years, Jim O'Connell has treated men and women living under bridges and on abandoned loading docks in one of the richest cities in the country. Kidder told me that spending time with O'Connell exposed him to a world he hadn't known existed. People making do with, you know, on park benches and ATM parlors. Uh, one of Jim's patients had actually managed to rent a storage locker that he lived in, if you can imagine, in the winter. There were tents on the outskirts of cities. But still, what you see out there is real, really bad disease. It, 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 you know, people dying way before their time. Jim, Tracy is making me think about what you've talked about many times over the years, is that when you started in this in this field, you were seeing conditions like trench foot among homeless people, which you had assumed would, might not exist in a modern-day society. What else surprised you about the health problems that homeless people routinely deal with? Oh, there was much that surprised me. The, the first thing was I was struck by how many common everyday illnesses were prevalent among homeless people, but they had been neglected for years. Most people had not seen doctors or nurses for many, many years. So there were the common illnesses. But then I also saw what I think is attendant to homelessness is several exotic things that I wasn't at all prepared for. Scurvy, for example, I remember seeing that. And um, people with infestations with lice and scabies, wounds that had maggots on them, all these things that I had seen pictures of in textbooks but never really had a chance to see here in a city like Boston in our in the hospitals where I was training. So it was quite, you know, I was quite taken in. What's your current thinking on how important finding housing for homeless people should be versus addressing their other deeper problems. Housing is the absolutely critical and necessary part of this of solving this homelessness problem. So for from our perspective, when housing first became part of the realm, that meant that 
all the people that we've been seeing on the streets for 20 years, 25 years, all of a sudden went to the top of the list. You know, instead of having to get on medication, get sober, do all that to be able to qualify for housing, they became the top of the list. And they went into housing and it was like a miracle. Um, and we were able to, you know, if we've been caring for them on the streets, we were able to now do home visits to them, take care of them in their homes. And it was, we were just ecstatic. What we learned over time, though, was for the group of people that are chronically homeless, living out in the shelters and on the streets for a long time, they bear a huge burden of co-occurring medical and psychiatric and substance use disorders. And those don't just go away when they get into housing. However, we've learned that you really have to provide a lot of support to people. And housing first is supportive housing. So it's housing plus a support. And I think for most of us, the struggle has been how do you fund that support? How do you make sure there is enough, um, you know, medical and social and other supports to keep people in their housing? Tracy, a common thread you found in your reporting about many people living on the streets is they had been through horrific trauma, often in childhood, abuse so sickening that I'm reluctant to even describe some of it out loud. And, and that does permanent damage. How big a factor would you say that is, in your view, of why people sometimes end up homeless? Well, I think it's a pretty big factor. One of the uh, psychiatrists on Jim's street team, who's now retired, once told me that he figured that about 90% of, of his patients w suffered from mental illness or substance abuse or both. And he figured that something on the order of 75% had not just bad childhoods, but really traumatic ones. And I, I, I heard some stories that just are, are just so appalling, you you can scarcely believe that anyone would treat children that way. If, 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 I had, if there were one thing I could do to, you know, to try to end homelessness, it'd be try to find some way to end this uh, horrifying um, fact. And, and, and we now know, of course, that, that that kind of abuse, that kind of trauma early on leaves, does leave its imprint on the body. I mean, it's going to make people unhealthy in various ways. Jim, Tracy's book shows you sometimes wrestling with whether you're making a difference, or at least a positive difference. How much do you think your work of almost four decades has changed the overall health of Boston's homeless population? Are you able to measure your success in your view? Uh, that's a question, Sasha, that um, torches us almost daily. <laughs> because, you know, when you look back, um, and I, I would say when I first started, I thought we understood homelessness. I thought it was going to be a relatively temporary emergent um, problem that we would fix quickly. And it has become seemingly intractable in our society. So um, when we look at outcomes, you know, we realize that we're dealing with a population living in a city like Boston with all of our wonderful hospitals and community health centers. And this population has a mortality rate that looks more like a third world country. Um, and we've been trying hard to bend that curve. And I think we've been able to do a little bit. But when I step back, probably not much if you, if you hold us to that standard. We sure are not capable as doctors and nurses to end homelessness. We can do our part to advocate for it. But we're just taking care of people while we're all trying to figure out how to solve this bigger problem. Tracy Kidder's latest book, Rough Sleepers, is about Dr. Jim O'Connell, who heads Boston Healthcare for the Homeless. Tracy and Jim, thank you very much. Thank you, Sasha. Sasha, thanks so much. Appreciate it.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition for a second day, supporters of former Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan clashed violently with police trying to arrest Khan on graft charges. And another atmospheric river is sweeping across California, bringing high winds and heavy rain and forcing evacuations and road closures. It's 829. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Davis Malm, tax lawyers committed to your most taxing matters. Learn more at davismalm.com, D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Wall Street futures are down sharply ahead of the open amid renewed concerns about the banking sector. Shares of Credit Suisse dropped to new lows in Europe today after the bank's largest investors said they could not provide additional backing. This follows the failure of California's Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank in New York. NPR's David Gura has more. Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank were pretty unique. They had a large uninsured set of deposits, and they catered to very specific segments of the population. And I should say right now there is no indication any small bank is in trouble. But a bank analyst told me this is a show-me moment for banks. They're under pressure to show their investors and their customers that they're in good shape. Right now, Dow futures are off 483 points or more than 1%. The U.N. and Turkey say talks are continuing to extend an agreement that allows shipments of grain from Ukrainian ports along the Black Sea. The secretary general and his team are focused in close contact with all of the parties on doing everything possible to ensure the continuity of the initiative. That's U.N. spokesman Stefan Dejarik. Russia wants a shorter 60-day extension. Ukraine wants another 120-day extension and has rejected Moscow's proposal. Those talks are continuing today. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The snow total in the north-central Massachusetts town of Ashby is stunning. The National Weather Service reports 30 inches of snow fell there yesterday. That's even more amazing when you consider that the snowfall total at Logan Airport is half an inch. There are still 29,000 power outages statewide following yesterday's storm. Students at Wellesley College want all transgender and non-binary people to be eligible for admission. They voted to change the admissions policy yesterday. But as WBUR Samantha Kutzia reports, school officials don't support the proposal. A school spokesperson says Wellesley College acknowledges the results of the vote, but it doesn't plan to make any changes. The school currently only admits people who identify as women. People against the change say letting students who were assigned male at birth attend Wellesley would change its mission as a women's college. Supporters say women's colleges are safe spaces for people who have faced gender discrimination and argue that trans and non-binary folks fit into that category. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Samantha Kutsia. New Hampshire Governor Republican Chris Sununu wants state troopers to help enforce security at the Canadian border. He's asking the head of Homeland Security to reverse an order that prevents any federal-state partnerships. Sununu says he has plans to protect the northern border if an agreement can't be reached. He's proposing a program that would have state and county officials patrolling that area. This comes after Sununu launched a national political organization, which is often the first step toward running for president. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Camp Mara Vista. 
where kids ages 8 to 17 discover their best selves in the New Hampshire mountains. Enrolling now at AYF.com slash Vista. It was a rough night for the Bruins in Chicago last night. They lost to the Blackhawks 6-3. to The Bees' road trip will take them to Winnipeg tomorrow to play the Jets. The Celtics will be in Minneapolis tonight to take on the Timberwolves. And at spring training in Florida yesterday, the Red Sox lost to the Tigers 6-2. to The Sox will play the Rays this afternoon. Mostly cloudy and breezy today in the low to mid 40s. Tonight, skies clear and temperatures fall to the low 30s. Tomorrow, clouds move in throughout the day and it'll be warmer near 50. It's 36 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Fidelity Investments, a dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Layla Falden. Winter storms on both coasts have wreaked havoc in several states. A powerful nor'easter has swept through parts of the Northeast. It dumped heavy snow and caused power outages for hundreds of thousands of people, plus hazardous roads and school closures. In already rain-soaked California, a new storm there is just the latest in a series of extreme weather events that have battered that coast. Rain and wind knocked out power and flooded communities. Jeremiah Edding of member station KAZU is in Monterey County, California, and he joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. So let's start with where you are, the Monterey Bay area. What are you seeing there? Well, there wasn't as much rain with this latest storm as we expected, and these storms have been relentless this year. This is the 11th atmospheric river to hit California so far this season. The bad news is there was a lot of wind. Up in the Santa Cruz Mountains, the winds were gusting up to 97 miles an hour. That brought down a lot of trees, closed roads, caused power outages. And all of that is slowing down recovery from previous storms in places like the town of Pajaro. That's where a levee failed over the weekend, flooding the community and causing thousands to flee their homes. Power outages have really been a consistent theme of these storms here. Last weekend, there were over 35,000 residents in Monterey County without power for days, some even without cell service. So with all the wind, we're seeing uh, some of those impacts continue. So really an unprecedented year weather-wise in California. How are other parts of the state doing? There are currently over 200,000 Californians without power. And again, that's largely due to wind. The National Weather Service had high wind warnings in the Bay Area, Sacramento Valley, the Sierra Foothills. And out in the Sierra Nevada, they've had a really historic snow year. But this most recent storm was warmer, so now there's rain on snow. And that's causing this huge snowpack that's accumulated in the mountains to really melt fast, which is bringing the risk of flooding to communities downstream. It also makes the snow heavier, which increases avalanche risk in mountain communities like Lake Tahoe. But despite all this, I think people are really feeling a sense of relief because the storm was just not as bad as expected. Especially after all that they've already seen. So how are people coping? What kind of help are they getting? Governor Gavin Newsom has declared a state of emergency for 40 of California's 58 counties. Mm -hmm. President Joe Biden, who's been visiting California recently, also issued a federal emergency declaration. And that opens up a lot of funds and resources and support to help these communities recover. 
Locally here in Monterey County, the food bank has kicked into high gear. Some of the local hotels and are offering discounts. The county has provided shelter options for the thousands of evacuees at this point. So all that happened here, but there were reports of this kind of volunteer and first responder work happening in other communities as well. What about the people who were forced to evacuate? You mentioned at least thousands in Monterey County. Any sense of when they'll be able to return to their homes? Well, we do have a break in the rain coming up, and that will help crews open up roads and reestablish power and really help a lot of people across California kind of clean up. But I will say for lower-income communities, like small agricultural towns like Pajaro here in Monterey County, it really is a different story. Mm. After the aging levy failed, the whole town was underwater, and you know that levy was historically neglected. The federal government knew for decades it needed to be replaced. Wow. So now there's no word as to when it will be fixed, and officials are saying you know it could be months before these residents can return home. Jeremiah Edding from member station KAZU in Monterey County. Thanks, Jeremiah. Thank you. There's more political drama today in Pakistan. Police there are squaring off against supporters of former Prime Minister Imran Khan. The police have been trying to arrest Khan at his home for failing to appear in court. But so far, his supporters haven't let them. This political crisis comes as Pakistan stands on the brink of economic default. NPR's Dia Hadid is on the line from Pakistan's capital, Islamabad. Hi, Dia. Hi, Sasha. Dia, this is a situation that is changing quickly. What's happening now? Well, there's been cat-and-mouse clashes between security forces and supporters of Imran Khan around his residence, which lies in a leafy suburb of the Pakistani city of Lahore. And supporters have shared this clip of the clashes. Have a listen. It sounds intense, and while this was going on, Khan went on to Twitter to say this. He's saying, if something happens, if I'm jailed, or if they kill me, it's up to you to carry on fighting. Dear, why is this happening? Ostensibly, this is to arrest Khan because he hasn't turned up to court in one of 88 zero cases that he's enmeshed in. But Khan supporters say the real reason is to try curb his influence before elections, and they're expected this fall. You know from covering Pakistan that this country is sadly used to political crisis. Is this situation being considered more of the same or is it different? It's really worrying analysts here, and they say they haven't actually seen a situation like this in years where supporters are risking their own lives to protect their leader. As these clashes are going on, there's also been pop-up protests in other cities around Pakistan, and this attempt to arrest him... His supporters say it's going to make him even more popular. Have a listen here to Abdullah Riyar. He's an aide to Imran Khan. Imran Khan symbolizes a yearning of this nation to have an accountable political process. Mr. Khan has made very clear that military has no role in the politics of Pakistan. Okay, that last thing that Riyar said, that the military has no role in Pakistani politics, that's important because Khan and his supporters say his ouster in April was orchestrated by the army. Does the military have that kind of power in Pakistan? Analysts say it does. The military is Pakistan's most powerful institution and they're widely seen as being behind this campaign to clip Khan's political wings and that's been going on for months now. But the thing is, Khan's been fighting back and his supporters have unleashed 
a jaw-dropping amount of vitriol against the army. And this is an institution that used to be spoken about in hushed tones because it was so feared. So have a listen here to columnist Ara Fanor, who spoke about this. You see a lot of people questioning the role of the military. This should be of concern to the military itself because, you see, legitimacy at the end of the day is about perception. But there's also a more immediate issue. Pakistan is on the brink of default. The IMF has so far refused to release a tranche of a bailout worth about a billion dollars. And that's partly because of this political crisis. And now in Pakistan, millions of people are close to starving. Thousands are losing their jobs. And the coming days and weeks are looking dire because neither side, not the army, not the government, nor Khan, is showing any signs of compromise. That's NPR's Dia Hadid in Islamabad. Thank you. Thank you, Sasha. This is NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition, why rodeos are becoming more popular among young people who are trying to preserve the rural lifestyle. Today on The Common Podcast, New Hampshire lawmakers are considering a number of bills taking aim at the rights of LGBTQ plus students and other young people. The Common looks at what the legislation could mean for LGBTQ plus youth and their families. Find The Common on your podcast app today. It's 843. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo's Hunter Douglas Energy Smart Style event. Window fashions designed to increase energy efficiency. Hunter Douglas at Innuendo in Natick and Innuendo.com. Back to the low to mid-40s today under mostly cloudy skies. It'll also be a bit windy. Tonight, low 30s and skies clear overnight. Tomorrow, clouds move in throughout the day. It'll be windy with temperatures that may reach near 50. It's 36 degrees in Boston. A Cambridge biotech says it plans to double its staff in the next 18 months thanks to $85 million in new funding. MedRE Therapeutics currently employs about 20 people. The company says the funding will help it continue research on potential treatments for fibrosis. That's a condition that causes scarring on organs that can often be deadly. Waltham-based seafood distributor Slade Gordon is being acquired by a Canadian company. Cook Inc. is one of North America's largest seafood companies. The terms of the deal have not been disclosed. An autonomous robot will soon be roaming the aisles of a BJ's wholesale near you. The Marlboro-based retailer says the robot is named Tally. It'll help track which items are in stock and confirm that products are accurately priced. It's similar to Marty, the robot introduced by Stop and Shop back in 2019, although BJ's says Tally is more advanced. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bernadine Sung Megason and Tim O'Sullivan with Compass New England, helping clients navigate the evolving Massachusetts real estate market. More at homesbybernadine.com. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Member FDIC.
Almost 4,000 veterans live unhoused in Los Angeles County. Now, a small number have moved into housing on a gated campus run by the Department of Veterans Affairs. It really makes you see the promise of what it could be if the VA was following through more quickly on all of the housing it promised there. It's the topic of the new podcast, City of Tents, Veterans Row. More on All Things Considered from NPR News. Starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Leila Faldin. As America's rural areas see populations decline, they're looking for ways to keep their lifestyle alive for the next generation. Some families in western Kansas think youth rodeo will help. David Condos of the Kansas News Service reports. Mesa Headland is decked out in a brown western shirt with leather tassels dangling from leopard print shoulder patches. Well, it's that. She's only five years old. But this is far from her first rodeo. I went here since I was two. She's waiting for her favorite event, which involves untying a ribbon from a goat's tail with help from her trusty steed named Ott. He loves kids. That's the best special about him. And he's addicted to me. We can't spend a day without hanging out with each other. This is the Young Guns Extravaganza in Dodge City, Kansas. Okie doke, next to go is going to be Mindy Tuxhorn. So how do you turn kindergartners into wranglers? Little bitty saddles for little bitty kids. That's Melissa Vanderham. She started Young Guns eight years ago with a few other rodeo parents who wanted their kids to get more practice during the winter when other competitions shut down. They're pretty competitive little yes, six-year-olds. They are. They are. <laughs> she expected to get 50 kids the first year. 120 showed up. This year, it welcomes nearly 400 little cowpokes into the arena. Go, 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 go. In a region where farming and ranching go back generations, rodeo is sewn deep into the cultural fabric. But small town populations have been shrinking for decades as young people leave the rural western life for bigger cities. And parents like Vanderham hope that introducing kids to rodeo might spur them to fall in love with their hometown's cowboy culture. Then, maybe when those kids grow up, they'll want to get back in the saddle again and take on the family farmer ranch. I'm back in the saddle again. The sport of rodeo was born from real cowboy work. Ranch hands would try to one-up each other at the end of long cattle drives. Where the longhorn cattle feed on the lowly Jimson wheat. But what started out as a pastime for tough guys on the range has become big business all over. Between the horses, the gear, the trucks, trailers, and travel, being a rodeo family today takes a lot of money. A good saddle could cost $2,000. But youth rodeo keeps growing. The number of 5th grade to 12th grade kids competing in Kansas jumped more than 15% in the past few years. Jean Theodori, a rural sociologist at Sam Houston State University in Texas, isn't surprised. He says it comes back to the idea that rural America is the last remnant of a bygone, simpler, better lifestyle. He calls it the rural mystique, and rodeo is a picture of that in its purest form. Whether it's real or not, in our minds it represents that wholesome rural way of life, and we as a society, we yearn for that. And while city slickers might get anxious seeing a five-year-old ride a full-size horse, serious injuries in youth rodeo are relatively rare. Kids often wear safety helmets, and instead of clinging to a 1,500-pound bull, these kids are riding their own horses through a timed obstacle course, chasing goats or lassoing fake steer heads. Back in the arena, nine-year-old Braylon Barrett climbs onto the back of her speckled gray horse named Jesse. What I love about him is She's been competing for five years, so she's been bucked off before. Dragged, too. 
but nothing that kept her out of the saddle. And that is where she wants to stay. I never want to quit rodeoing. I just want to teach my kids how to ride and train and feel it just like me. For NPR News, I'm David Condos in Dodge City, Kansas. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up at noon today is Here and Now, and Scott Tong is in studio to tell us what's on the show. Hi there, Scott. Hey, Rupa. Good to see you in nice studio you. again. So did you just whisper to me that you're a sci-fi fan oh, girl? I don't think that's a secret. I am okay. very much a sci-fi fan. Well, on our show today, we have a fabulous interview with Margaret Atwood, the one and only. <laughs> uh, she has a new set of short stories out. And she's in her 80s, but I believe right now, she came into the studio last week to do this interview. She's now doing a book tour in England and Holland. I mean, she is unbelievable (laughs) uh, and so funny. Uh, She is still, it's embedded in her books, of Mm -hmm. course, as as you know. Um, I had the honor to, to do a live event in Cambridge with her where she talked about Cambridge Sergiliad, the location of yes, The Handmaid's that's freaky. Tale. Have you watched that? that it's I in have. the show. It's kind of freaky. And it is it is based in Cambridge and she connects it to the Puritan history of Cambridge, Massachusetts and and passages of Genesis that she says are connected to the framing of The Handmaid's Tale. Great interview on our show today, 10 or 11 minutes or so. We're going to uh, also have an update on this chemical PFAS um, in the water and the government is trying to, to um, regulate that as well. And more. You guys make me so jealous the people you get to talk to. Thank you, Scott. Yeah. That's here and now today at noon. It's 851. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu slash globe. And Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business, personalized to your needs. Certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, the Silicon Valley bank crisis. California might seem far away, but the fallout continues to really hit people here. Late payrolls, worries about future affordable housing, even possible implications for student loan forgiveness. From the newsroom, we dive in. That's Radio Boston, today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. It's now a big Swiss bank shaking, uh, shaking, I should say, banking stocks and financial markets more widely. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Vantage Score. Vantage Score's credit scoring models help expand financial inclusion by leveraging predictive analytics at VantageScore.com. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. Credit Suisse stock this morning lost a fifth of its value after the bank revealed its auditor had found problems in financial reporting controls. A key backer in Saudi Arabia today declined to invest more in the bank to help with that crunch. Other European banks are also seeing their stocks selling off. BNP Paribas is down 10 percent in Paris now. Commerzbank is down more than 9 percent in Frankfurt. My Marketplace colleague, the BBC's Ali Dalbertansen, has more. The share price of the banking giant Credit Suisse has hit record lows today, plunging more than 20% as turmoil continues in the sector. Trading on Credit Suisse was then halted. The sell-off was prompted by an announcement by its main shareholder, the Saudi National Bank, that it couldn't increase its stake in Credit Suisse anymore. 
Investors' confidence in Credit Suisse has been dented recently. Its delayed annual report, published on Tuesday, showed what was described as material weaknesses in controls over its financial reporting. The BBC's Ali Dalbertansen filed that for us from the UK. The key stock indexes in both London and Frankfurt are each down 2.7 percent right now. The U.S. stock market doesn't open for just over half an hour here, but Dow and S&P futures are each down about 2 percent. Futures for Bank of America stock down 4 percent. J.P. Morgan futures down 3.6 percent. Money is flowing into the perceived safety of U.S. government bonds again this morning. The 10-year interest rate is down sharply 3.47 percent. Lower interest rates is not what the U.S. Federal Reserve wanted as it tries to slow growth in the economy to fight inflation. Now, you can see this tension in mortgage rates coming down amid the bank mess of the last few days. For a 30-year fixed home loan, the average has fallen from above 7 percent the other day to now 6.75 percent, according to Mortgage News Daily. Accordingly, applications for mortgages are up 6.5% in a week, according to fresh data this morning. Marketplace's Lily Jamali reports on what this means for a housing market that had been cooling. The collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank was a shock to financial markets. Daryl Fairweather, chief economist at Redfin, says people are still trying to figure out how widespread the systemic risks are. That includes prospective home buyers. In general, buyers don't really like the uncertainty. They want to know when they start their home search that they're going to get a particular rate. The last few days have been particularly unstable for mortgage rates, which were already volatile amid Fed rate hikes over the last year. Right now, says Miller Samuelson appraiser's Jonathan Miller, it's not just buyers that might be spooked. I think the outcome of this may be a tightening of credit by the banks themselves with banks taking a more cautious approach to lending. I'm Lily Dramali for Marketplace. The Federal Reserve was supposed to raise interest rates again next week, but there's a question mark about that now. Can the Fed add pressure to a rattled financial system right now? And it is March Madness for accountants, for S-corporations, partnerships, and some LLCs. Today is the deadline to file tax returns for 2022 unless you file for an extension. This sounds like high-flying stuff, but many mom-and-pop organizations can fit into those tax categories. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Fidelity. A dedicated Fidelity advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. We got the inflation reading for February yesterday, 6% in a year. That's still high, but it's down, an improvement. And it's sure not 13%. That was inflation's peak in the 1970s when the economy suffered back-to-back recessions. This left New York City almost bankrupt. It cut services to the bone with devastating effects, especially in low-income communities like the Bronx, which is where 50 years ago hip-hop was born. Marketplace's Nova Safa went to an exhibit here in New York which explores this artistic and economic connection. The 1970s in the South Bronx were years of upheaval. This largely black and Latino neighborhood was literally crumbling. Some landlords were even paying arsonists to torch their buildings for the insurance money. And residents used the few resources available to them, including spray paint and turntables, to express what was happening. Grandmaster Flash was one of hip-hop's pioneers. 
Many say hip-hop began as a musical innovation at a party in a basement of a Bronx building, and then branched out into graffiti art, breakdancing, and rap. Hip-hop came from sadness. That's Sasha Jenkins. He helped curate a photo exhibit at New York's Photographiska Museum. The exhibit chronicles hip-hop's first five decades. It came from trying to find a way to exercise these societal demons. We did that in many ways and found the success. The societal demons were many. The city was losing revenues, costs were skyrocketing, and officials drastically cut services. What is really striking about these cuts is that they're very haphazard. Kim Phillips-Fine is a history professor at Columbia University and author of a book examining New York's fiscal crisis and those cuts. They affect many different departments of the city government, the police, the fire department, education, parks. There are cuts really all throughout the city's agencies. The photo exhibit starkly shows the results. Buildings look like they were in World War II. Co-curator Sasha Jenkins is pointing to documentary-style images of hip-hop's early days. One photo shows a group of kids breakdancing on homemade dance floors. Breakdancing happened on cardboard, you know, portable dance floor that you can get at the uh, supermarket. Later images are portraits, meant for magazine and album covers. One from 1990 is of a young Queen Latifah with large, bold earrings, a shining cuff on her wrist, and a beautifully decorated hat. She's extremely regal, confident, and someone who looks like a leader. And in many cases, when it came to the rappers, they became de facto leaders because we didn't have social capital, we didn't have necessarily political power. The exhibit shows how hip-hop altered all of that by becoming a way to call for social change and to escape economic conditions that seemed, at one time, inescapable for many. In New York, I'm Novosafo for Marketplace. And I'm David Brancaccio. You're listening to the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. Sorry to cut off the music there. A slight chance of rain showers this morning. Otherwise, it'll be cloudy and breezy today with temperatures in the low to mid 40s. Tonight, those fall to the low 30s and it'll be windy. Overnight, skies slowly clear. Then clouds return throughout the day tomorrow. We'll have temperatures in the upper 40s. About the same on Friday. It's 36 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock and the BBC is next. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Don Quixote. Returning for the first time in more than 10 years, on stage tomorrow through the 26th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. I'm Rupa Shinoy, host of WBUR's Morning Edition. If you aren't an early riser like me, no problem. Download the new and improved WBUR app and never miss a minute of live radio. You can pause and rewind Morning Edition or start from the top of the hour all on your schedule. Listen to all your favorite shows when and how you want. Get the new WBUR app in your app store today. I'm education reporter Max Larkin, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.